Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. It's great to have you with us this afternoon as we sit down with another guest. This is the show where we do, of course, interview a different Christian every week about their life, about their faith, their testimony and about what they do for a living or what they do in ministry. And of course, uh, myself, Sam Hales, I'm with you today right the way through for the next hour or so. And uh, I present this program with a number of other journalists here at Premier. We take it in turns each week to interview a different guest. Before we get stuck into today's show, there's just time to remind you that this program is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine and you can get yourself a free copy. We are giving it away. All you need to do is go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We would be delighted to send you a copy of the latest issue of the magazine. There's news, there's features, reviews, columnists, all sorts of great material to get stuck into. So why not do that? It's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on the profile, it is time to meet our guest. So let's do that now, shall we? I'm here with Sharon Grenham-Thompson. She's an Anglican minister, former prison chaplain and a broadcaster. She's also known as the Glam Vicar. Her new book is out now and it's titled Jailbird. Sharon, welcome to the programme. Lovely to see you. Thanks for the invitation. So um, where did this nickname Glam Vicar come from? (laughs) Well, actually, it was a very, uh, very basic beginning. Um, I joined Twitter, oh, goodness knows how many years ago, right back at the beginning. And I needed a Twitter name. um, And I tried to think of something that was, you know, going to be distinctive. And uh, so that's the one I I just picked picked upon. And I've been trying to live up to it ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Um, so you were first ordained in 1998, and um, remember you said that at that point female vicars were very few and far between. Um, so did you have to deal with, I guess, a lot of uh, Vicar of Dibley references or even sexist comments to begin with? Oh, yes. As I say in my book at the beginning, uh, you know, if I uh, had a pound for every Vicar of Dibley reference, I'd be a very rich woman by yeah. now, that's for sure. Yeah, there was plenty of that. I mean, I think the issue has been uh, that up until fairly recently, mm. we've not had very much right. of a media representation of Vicars, have we? And particularly not uh, female Vicars. Yeah. It has been, you know, Dawn French and Vicar of Dibley and, until fairly recently. Um, but we've also just had this kind of dichotomy, haven't we, of, well, you're either the spooky Catholic Catholic priest in the horror stories, or you're the rather bumbling Church yeah. of England vicar. So there's not been that representation. So yeah. people haven't really understood, I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, despite the nickname Glam Vicar, you've actually spent a lot of your time uh, ministering in a very unglamorous location of prisons, uh, particularly Her Majesty's Prison Bedford, I know, for, for some years. 
But what was it that um, drew you to apply for those kind of positions as a, as a chaplain in a prison? Well, it was all a bit of an accident, really. It was never something I set out to do, although uh, when I qualified as a solicitor and uh, was a Christian at the time and then was going for ordination, my friends all said to me, oh, you'll be a prison chaplain one day. And mm-hmm. my response was, no way, I'm not going to do that. And, of course, look what happened. God has a sense of humour. Um, it was, I wasn't in uh, parish ministry at the time, uh, needed a job, wanted it to be a job in in uh, ministry of some sort. Um, I'd been made redundant just recently mm-hmm. um, and just a job interview or a job um, advert came up um, I thought well alright I'll go for it have a go I turned up for the interview and, and quite by my surprise yeah. I ended up with the job so it was a real accident Wow the rest is history as they say <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant so I want to go back um, here on the profile we always talk about a person's early life growing up uh, what was your early life like? Well, I was born in Hampshire, um, spent some of my childhood in Surrey and most of my teenage years in North London, so I'm a good home counties girl. Mm -hmm. Um, It was both very ordinary and happy bits and some not good bits, really. It was was very varied, I suppose. Um, For most of the time, it was myself, my brother, mum and dad. Um, There were unhappy bits. It was was a fairly turbulent time in lots of ways. Um, My parents split up when I was uh, nine, um, and my mum married again, uh, married a chap who was in the army. And we did a lot of moving around because of that. Mm-hmm. There were various issues at home, difficulties at home, um, difficult relationships and things like that. So that, that made life quite difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see my dad for uh, quite a long time during my sort of growing up years. And then we got back in touch again. Um, and there was also this, this um, incident that happened to me that I eventually discovered as a teenager, that the person who I thought was my dad wasn't in fact my father yeah and you mentioned this story in the book uh, it's to do with school asking to see your birth certificate and um, there's a bit of a story there isn't there about how you discovered it oh yes there is I mean I'm uh, old enough to be uh, part of the era where we used to do O levels and I was coming up to O levels and uh, we were all told that we needed to prove our identity so that the right name went on the right certificate or something like that I don't know Um, so we had to bring in our birth certificate so school could get the right name so I went home and asked for my birth certificate and for some reason this caused great consternation and it wasn't going to be possible and I, I couldn't have it. And Being the smart-ass teenager that I was, I did say, oh, you can always go to St Catherine's house and get it, which didn't go down too well. Um, it, in the end, anyway, I was furnished with a letter uh, saying what my full name was and so on. And I took that into school. That was accepted. That was fine. But... Clearly, I was different Mm. to everybody else. Um, And I didn't like being different. I mean, what teenager does like being different? And it sort of made my radar twitch a bit. As I say, um, you know, life wasn't great at home. And so this all seemed very odd. um, And I wondered, well, perhaps perhaps there's some great story here. Maybe my parents weren't married. Or maybe, as I think it's a fantasy most of us have, maybe I was adopted and my real parents are a prince and princess from somewhere. (laughs) Whatever it was, it it all seemed rather strange. Mm. Um, So I decided I was going to find out. Um, now, you know, it's not necessarily perhaps the best thing I could have done. I went snooping uh, and I did find my birth certificate and I did find that, uh, well, the parents were married, so that was fine, but the person who I thought was my dad was not, in fact, my father. So that was obviously, a, well, you hear, don't you, about heart-stopping moments yeah. um, and this was a moment when my heart literally went 
boom, um, and brought out a whole load of questions for me then. It's, well, who am I? Where do I come from? Is there a whole family out there I know nothing about? Why has this been kept from me? What is this all about? And it, it sparked off quite a crisis in me. But because it really wouldn't have been helpful for me to bring that up at home or to mention how I'd found out, I kept it all to myself. Um, and as a 14-year-old, to keep that kind of thing to yourself was, was a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, and school life in general was that you know kind of normal mixture of <laughs> when mixture school of, ever normal? <laughs> uh, yes, is school ever normal? Was that uh, was that happier or more stable than home life? It was brilliant. Yeah. It really was good. I was I was very lucky um, to go to a series of really good schools, and you know whatever people's politics are, they were private schools. Yeah. Um, good or bad, I don't know. I was I was bright, so I passed exams to get in. Yeah. Um, and I would say that those schools, especially my secondary school, was my saving grace right. because when things were unstable yeah. at home, um, when I was feeling like I didn't belong anywhere, or I was useless and unlovable and nobody wanted me anyway, and all of those things. School was a place where I was was okay. Yeah, I may have felt, you know, a bit on the edge sometimes, but I could just be myself. I could be clever if that's where I was. You know, I could experiment, I could try. And because they were the kind of places they were, they encouraged you to push yourself and have a go. And so particularly my secondary school made me believe I could I could do anything, yeah. really. Uh, and where did faith factor into this time as, as a child? Do you, do you have any kind of Christian background? No, there was no Christian background in my family at all. Again, I'm old enough to be of the generation where at school you had a Christian assembly every day. Right, yeah. And it was very much there, kind of, you know, in the background mm. by osmosis. When I was very little, um, six, seven, eight, I was at a convent school, Catholic convent school, not a Catholic family. Mm. It was a good school. So that's where I went. Yeah. The nuns were great, actually, fantastic. Um, and they used to troop us along to Mass every Monday morning. Um, but because I wasn't a Catholic, I couldn't go up and receive communion. Yeah. But uh, one day I decided I, I quite wanted this bit of God that was being handed out. So I filed up to the front with my with my Catholic schoolmates, uh, knelt down, ready to get my bit of God. And along came the priest um, with the Mother Superior, and of course they knew I wasn't Catholic. Yeah. So they passed me by. Yeah. And that was quite a formative moment, Um, both positive and negative, Mm. um, in the sense of, gosh, I've been passed by by God. Um, But also, well, I want some of that. And it was that, you know, so although I was only little, I was only eight or so, it got me curious about what is all this stuff that goes on. Um, And I remember I used to go home and get a cardboard box, turn it upside down, put one of my mother's white tablecloths on the top, put a dressing-up dress on over my clothes, and I would hold a little service in my bedroom. Um, just, I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was just that, you know, that beginning to explore of that. You think, eight years old, and I was already exploring what does it mean to stand behind an altar and yeah. say a service. Yeah. So, you know, that was, it was all there vaguely in the background. There was something there. Yeah, there was something. There was something. Going on there was, that's right. So, so when that sort of something materialised, was that more at university? That, yeah, that definitely. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I got through my teenage years with a vague idea about faith again, as I say. Um, but I was carrying a lot, a lot of emotional baggage, a lot of hard stuff. Um, and I got to university and all that difficult stuff kind of all exploded in a horrible mess all over the place. And it was n- not an easy time for me what, when what I was happened? there. Well, I think, you know, when you've been quite suppressed, I suppose you might say, as a young person and when life has been unhappy. And as, as I said, I kind of closed in myself, was quite lonely, quite isolated. 
Um, you know, the walls were up around me. Um, and I had come away from much of my childhood feeling I was unlovable, um, I was stupid, I was ugly. Um, lots of negative things I'd come away with. Uh, and then I get to university and really got not much idea about how I should be in the world and how I, sh- I should negotiate this, just being out of these very strict confines. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the first term I was very good and I sat at my desk and I did my work and mm-hmm. just you know went to all my lectures. And then the second term I discovered alcohol and the opposite sex and drugs. Um, and then all of that lack of self-esteem, that inability to draw boundaries, uh, all of those negative things just channeled it all into really very self-destructive behaviour. Yeah. And this is why you were studying law, is that is that right? Um, well, I was studying law because I kind of dropped into that by accident, really. <laughs> but um, I mean, you talk, you know, you're bright, bright people growing up and yeah. you clearly have to be to go to university and study something as in-depth as that. And yeah. it was all going okay and then, as you say, you discovered these things in the second term and that must have affected your studying. It, it did, yeah, it, it did because I then stopped being the good girl who sat at my desk and turning in my essays on time yeah. and that sort of thing, you know. I, I'm still good friends with one of my um, tutors from that time. You know, he sort of laughs at what a disaster I was at that point. <laughs> that point. Um, yeah, and I wouldn't turn up to lectures. And I, you know, okay. the, the truth be told, though, actually, I got to the point where, as I say, I, I dropped into to studying law by accident. And actually, I just found it really boring. It, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to be something very creative um, or, or writing or can't something like that. can't be creative with the law, can you? You can't really, really, can you? Like yeah. And it was just one of those things, family stuff, bit of pressure from there, that um, going off to art school or drama college just wasn't going to be the done thing. Yeah. My best friend was studying law, and I thought... Right. Okay, I'll do that then. Yeah. And that's how I stumbled into it. Yes, I was bright enough to get in and do yeah. it and all of those things, but I didn't really enjoy it. So that wasn't much of a motivation either. But I did it. I did get there. I got the degree in the end. So, I, you know, it was a frantic few weeks right towards the very end. Not much sleep, lots of pro plus. Um, <laughs> and I got there and I got the degree in the end. But, yeah, it, it did suffer. And I'm sure I could have uh, had a much easier time of it academically if I'd yeah. focused on that. Yeah. And tell me about this experience, 19, uh, age 19 in, in church. I mean, would you describe, I read about it in the book, would you describe that moment as becoming a Christian? Yeah, I would. I would say that was a sort of dramatic conversion experience, if you like. So we've got all of this journey all the way up. I'm at university and it's all of a mess. I've got these vague notions about religion going on in there somewhere, but no background to it and all of those sorts of things. Um, And I had a boyfriend um, for a very short while and then we we didn't get together and I didn't see him for a long time. And then about a year later, um, so when I was 19 turning 20 I uh, met up with him again and he was very different uh, he much more sorted um you know really seemed to have got his, his life together and we had a couple of sort of late night conversations in the pub you know about life the universe and everything mm. and he began to talk to me about the fact that he had become a Christian whatever that meant at that time uh, I wasn't really sure yeah. but I was quite impressed with with the the difference that had made in his life and it's and one of those people, if something intrigues me, as we found out with the birth certificate, I like to go and have a little find out about yes. it. So I thought, all right, I'm going to find out about this business then. Um, and I was living in Reading, which is where I was at university, and um, very close to where my student house was, there was this little church nestled in amongst the estate, quite a modern church. And I thought, OK, right, I'm going to go along there one Sunday morning. So I got myself up, which was unusual for me on a Sunday morning. Put on <laughs> my students to yeah, well, Exactly, that's very true. <laughs> put on my best clobber because I thought going to church that's what you do your nice best clothes skirt you know heels the lot very unlike me at that time as well and uh, that was my first mistake because I walked in through the doors of the church and everyone was in jeans so I really did stand out like a sore thumb but they were so welcoming 
you know, and um, without being pressurising. Um, and and the clearly people, there were lots of people there, all sorts of ages, clearly having a good time, but it meant something to them and they spent time with each other afterwards. It was really good. And so as I was leaving, the uh, young curate said to me, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, because I said it was great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. He said, we've got a healing service this evening. Why don't you come along to that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, thank you very much, I said, sort of thinking, get me out of here. Um, I went off home. And my housemates said, were quite amused at the thought that I'd been to church. Yeah. So they said, are oh, you coming down the pub tonight then? Uh, no, I'm going to go back to church, I said. No, I don't know why I said that. It just came out. So I did go back in jeans this time. Um, and this this healing service took place. Um, and it was basically Teze chants and nice quiet music and yeah. a little bit of a talk. And then the, the vicar stood up and said, OK, we're going to do some prayer for healing now. So um, if you would like someone to pray with you, then just come forward. And we've got a team here and they'll lay hands on you and pray for you. Um, if you don't want to come forward, but you want someone to pray for you, well, you can just stay in your place then. That, that's fine. There's no pressure. Um, just just come forward if you want it so I sit in there thinking oh here comes the weird bit not new Nelly I'm not doing anything here and I was just sat there in in the seat and then I was aware as I describe this in the book I was aware of a hand or a pushing on my shoulder or on my back so I look around get off I was about to say and there was nobody there there was just this sense of being very gently but insistently propelled forward and then almost immediately after that, a sense of being pushed back as well, another physical sense. Right. So, yeah, this was really quite strange. And I was sat there, and I was where I was doing this, this forwards and back motion, yeah. and this sense of pressure. Um, and whilst I was sort of trying to work out what on earth was going on, I just found myself falling to my knees just where I was. And as my knees hit the floor, and, you know... I'm quite a rational person, but this was just this amazing experience. It's a little bit graphic. You know when you've got a tummy upset and you kind of, you know, everything comes out. Um, I hope that's delicate enough. Um, But there was that sense, as my knees hit the floor, that sense of whoosh, of just emptying out. And then this gentle light and warmth coming in. Just like, you know, the Wesley, my heart strangely warmed thing. And these were all very physical sensations. Um, And I didn't really have the language for it at the time, but I knew it was God. I just knew. Um, And then I was aware that there were people who had obviously seen something going on and were there and were just sitting by me, just praying quietly. And the tears came, crying and crying. And all I could say was, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, really vivid moment. And I guess that was the kind of the start of it all. Yeah. And um, I I love how you mentioned that the thing that made you want to go to church in the first place was because you'd seen something in another person that had actually changed his life. And it wasn't just, I have a new set of beliefs, but something really would happened and clearly as you described that experience it was something you say very physical but how, how did it affect your life um well gosh in lots lots of ways some of which were probably a bit extreme at the time i was i was very into karate okay. um as a student i won a bronze medal in the british karate championships wow. yeah so all of those things i was very into that um but one of the things that the, the sort of group of people that surrounded me at the time said oh you shouldn't be doing that that's right. not a christian thing to do um I, i'm not sure i agree with that now yeah. but at the time i thought okay so yeah. so i gave up my karate okay. i got rid of a lot of the music i used to listen to i stopped uh, the drug smoking and things yeah. immediately uh, I stopped getting drunk. Um, you know, all, all this is my, my relationships became much more regular and much more sorted. So really did. I mean, it was a lot of giving up, if you like, mm. at the time. But hey, I needed to yeah. do that. I really did. And just goes to show that what you'd experienced 
was so life changing. It was worth giving these other things up, yeah, um, right. and that didn't that yeah. didn't matter so much. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So, so obviously quite a um, well powerful conversion experience. And and at what point after that did you start to think about ministry and uh, becoming a vicar? Well, the church um, I carried on going to that church then um, d- during the rest of my university time, and and then when I graduated, I stayed on in Reading. Um, and married the boyfriend um, and we, we worshipped there for, for a while and because we were both pretty creative types but um, I suppose I've also got well, the gift of the gab maybe um, and you know was a bit of a leadership type person anyway yeah. um, the vicar was was great and he could see that we had a lot that we wanted to offer mm. and that we were um, really had a heart for mission and so he invited us to take part in things um, away days mm. to lead family services and so I just began to explore all of that leadership kind of stuff and felt so at home and felt that that was great I qualified um, as a solicitor um, in 92 and I found that that the while I've been training for the law people would come to my office in a state you know I was dealing with people who'd gone bankrupt or whose marriage has broken down who've lost their houses whose companies have gone bust all those kinds of Mm. very personal things they come to my desk in a mess I'd go to court hopefully sort things out for them Mm wave them on their way I didn't see them before I didn't see them after um, and I wanted to do more and that new quite passionate Christian faith of mine I wanted to to bring that to bear in how I dealt with people and I wanted to bring in all that creative side that I was doing at at church as well Um, and so just gradually with some conversations with people with the vicar and so on he suggested to me that maybe what I should be looking at is exploring ordination Mm. so it went from there really Wow, fantastic. Um, you already mentioned that, that growing up was, was difficult. Um, I know you described your past as troubled and, and turbulent. I, I wonder, do you feel like any of that then affected your adult life in any way? Was any of that difficult uh, moments in childhood you know, affecting you sort of later in life when you're uh, exploring ordination and, and going into this new career path? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I speak about in the book, which I haven't sort of really very publicly spoken about before is that I was a a victim of sexual abuse as a young girl so from the age of 11 for a few years Um, and you know that stays with you for the rest of your life no matter how much healing you know I I honestly believe I have found nevertheless the effects are there with you and it's taken me till till now um, to really find that full healing so for many many years in my adult life that sense of um, again aloneness and brokenness and fear and self-disgust and all those things that you will hear survivors talk about um, all of those things were with me Um, so that affected relationships I made with people I was very untrusting um, defensive ready to um, expect that people would reject me so I'd reject them first all the classic psychologist dream kind of stuff you know and as I say having grown up although you know my relationship with my dad is great but because he and my mum broke up he wasn't around for a fair bit of my time um so you you know again I just felt very confused about where I belonged in the world um relationships therefore because of the fractured issues with dad figures and difficulties with my mum um all of those meant I didn't know how to relate to to men in particular um and so found myself so very much I when I say at the mercy of, that makes me sound a bit a bit sort of weak. I, I don't mean that, but people um, you know, sort of barged into my life and kind of ordered me about, if you like. Um, so, yeah, all of those things stayed with me for, for a very long time. The things I had to begin to address 
clearly as I went forward for ordination. I didn't actually get through the first time I applied. Um, It it took me two goes, um, which is probably no bad thing as well. Um, But, you know, some of these things are a lifetime of undoing. Um, And now I'm at a stage where, you know, those things haven't all gone but I recognise them now. I think now in maturity, I can see that sometimes when my reactions are getting a bit defensive or I'm feeling a bit insecure, I can see that that is just a character trait that's probably come from those early days. But I can put that gently to one side yeah. now. Um, and I think being open and honest about mm. the things that um, have affected me has, mm. has helped hugely as well. Sure, sure. Well, that brings us to the end of part one. But uh, join us again in a moment to hear more from Sharon Grenham-Thompson. She's an Anglican vicar, former prison chaplain and broadcaster, and her latest book is out now and it's titled Jailbird. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, and today my guest is Sharon Grenham-Thompson, She's an Anglican minister, former prison chaplain and broadcaster. She's also known as the Glam Vicar and her new book is out now. It's titled Jailbird. So we were just discussing at the end of part one, your route to ordination. And um, of course, you are the Glam Vicar. So that process, you know, you said you didn't make it first time around, but second time around you did. A huge part of uh, your ministry has been working in prisons. So I'd love to know a bit more about that. I, I would imagine going into working in a prison environment everyone has some preconceived ideas about what a prison is like and presumably some of those ideas were smashed uh, fairly quickly. Can you, can you talk a bit about what your expectations were and, and whether they were met? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I had, a, in one sense, a fairly gentle introduction to it in some ways because the first establishment I worked in was was very modern. Um, it was a youth uh, institution mm. called a Secure Training Centre for 12 to 17-year-olds. Um, so it was very, I'd say, very modern build. It was more like a big rambling school or something, you know, um, rather than a prison. Um, but you still have the high fences and the barbed wire and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um but but yes, I I don't know. I mean, a lot of people I've I've met over the years who said to me, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to work in a prison, and I perhaps brought volunteers in to to help with the work I'm doing or something like that. And they've come in and said, oh no, I can't stand it. Makes me feel really spooked. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Whereas actually, the first time, it just didn't bother me at all. It was just fine. Yeah. I, when I was training for the law, I had um, done a little bit of prison visiting. Um, we had the Christian Union at Guildford School of Law, and we'd gone into HMP Coldingley um, to hold a session there through the chaplaincy. So I'd kind of seen inside that way a little bit as well. Yeah, I suppose, you know, you only get to see what's on telly, don't you? Porridge and yeah. you know, things like that. Um, but it wasn't really in the forefront of my mind when I went in. I think the first time I went in, say, to this secure training centre, it was my first day in a new job anyway. I was so nervous that in, in many ways the environment was the last thing on my mind. But rather, what have I got to do with this yeah. job? But there are preconceptions about prison. Um, oh, you know, the, the, the usual phrase that people come out with, it's all a holiday camp. You know, let me say here and now, it isn't. Right. Really not. So that yeah. preconception is, is, is very Well, you untrue. hear, don't you, about the, you know, they've got uh, Sky TV and all of their uh, rooms and stuff. That isn't true. No, it's not, it's <laughs> not true. The televisions are there, but they are paid for. Right. They have to be earned. Mm-hmm. If there's misbehaviour, they're taken away. Um, you know, and at the very highest level of earned privileges, there is the opportunity to have a PlayStation on occasion has to be paid for will be taken away for misdemeanors and also when you have a situation where perhaps you're being locked up from seven in the evening to seven the following morning a human being has to have something to do 
uh, and you don't improve anyone's behaviour by having them staring at a wall. So in one sense, there has to be something. Yeah, I guess this speaks right to the heart of a, of a national debate, arguably, of what prison is for. Is prison for punishment or is prison for rehabilitation? Do you have a view on that? I think it's for both. Um, I think wrongdoing has to be dealt with, and I've been very clear about that in my book. You know, it's not all bleeding heart. Mm. People do wrong. Society says this is so wrong that you need to be removed from us for Mm. some time um, for you to understand the gravity of what you have done. Mm. So I think there is a place for a a punitive element, if you like. Mm. But for me, that punishment is the removal of freedom. Mm. It is being put behind those walls. It's it's not a joke. Um, it, it can be very scary places. So there is, that is the punishment, the deprivation of freedom. But I think, you know, with the exception of, gosh, probably only about 40 or 50 people, every prisoner currently in our system is going to be back out in society again because they haven't got a whole life sentence. So therefore, there has got to be a rehabilitative element. And I think that has to be a huge element because if people have got... it's so far down Mm. the wrong pathway, whatever the reasons, and there may be good reasons, but if they're so far down that pathway, then they're not just going to turn themselves around and walk back on a right one. So therefore, we have a stake Mm. in kind of trying to get them to the right pathway and presumably that's exactly where your job comes in as a prison chaplain to help with rehabilitation is that is that how you view your role it was lots of things i mean it was so many things at once but yes rehabilitation is a massive massive part of it um my job uh, most recently in in bedford prison where i was for five years i was in a high security prison before that but the, the job at bedford where i was a senior chaplain was to oversee a whole raft of chaplains so that anyone who came into prison with a religious background Mm -hmm. whatever faith that may have been was able then to practice that faith in the right kind of environment in um you know in an appropriate environment Mm -hmm. to assist with their rehabilitation Mm -hmm. um but then we were also there for people of faith or no faith for pastoral care Mm -hmm. um again you you know you come into that situation where your liberty has been removed from you rightly so Mm -hmm. um but you leave behind a life out there possibly a girlfriend or a partner, um, children, parents, all those things. And that's a very dislocating experience. Mm. You're also, you know, a prisoner would would find that this was possibly the really the lowest point in their life Mm. when they have messed up big time. And that's when they'd ask the big questions. So therefore, to be there alongside for both the inside time as well as a view to the outside mm. time was a really important part. Yeah, I mean, I, I often hear people talking about things like alpha in prisons, mm. and I guess the, the theory is that well, when you're in prison at the lowest point in your life, you realise all other options have failed, and that's when, for some people at least, um, God comes into the picture, they start asking those big questions. So was that your experience with people? Did you have those kind of, I guess, deep Uh, conversations with people about the things that really matter? Yeah, on on more than one occasion. I think you're absolutely right. For for, for someone who is predisposed to actually realize that this is the bottom and interestingly enough it was it was not not the younger men who were at that position it was often the men in their because I've only really worked with men for most of my career only the men who were perhaps in their late 20s early 30s going into their 40s so perhaps at that life stage where they suddenly realize Mm. hang on a minute this has been too many years doing this here I am again I am at rock bottom my partner's going to leave me I'll never see my kids again you know I'm in now for a long stretch and suddenly whack it hits them in the face um and so yeah that that is often when they would then break down 
a lot of the time and try to work out well what what do I do now where do I go now um and so without you know there, there are people who say oh yeah and then the chaplains just swoop in and someone's vulnerable and you just whack god on them and of course they're going to go go for that it wasn't about that but it was about accompanying someone yeah. in that journey um and listening to the story yeah. um often a very sad very tragic story doesn't excuse the wrongdoing yeah. but can often be a reason for it yeah. um and then begin to talk about forgiveness yeah. and hope and healing um and how i understand god to yeah. be that um so yeah some really really special conversations yeah. on occasion yeah you mentioned hope i guess the question is what what hope can you what hope do you offer someone who is in prison for 20 30 years what's the you know how do you counsel someone through that um what, what's the difference that god can make in that situation yeah i mean i think the, the thing i learned very quickly was that you know there aren't any easy answers for someone like that so mm-hmm. to turn around and say oh it'll all be fine and you know just hold on to god yeah. it, that's all pretty meaningless yeah. but actually to look at the biblical stories of darkness and struggle uh to look at good friday if you like but actually point time and time again through the bible to how that good friday that darkness Mm. is turned to light in ways that we don't always understand ways that we don't always expect Mm. um and to encourage people to look for the light however small the chink might be Mm. during that time um and also to help people to see that there are still opportunities for living Mm. Even in the prison environment, as, mm. as harsh and as difficult as that might be, there are opportunities for living, and that may be in education, uh, you know, in, in reading, in getting involved in spiritual things, in the chaplaincy, in work, um, in using that time positively despite the limitations that are there. Uh, and I wonder if, again, your own sort of personal story and background is uh, is, is helpful in this sense because you know you. you mentioned in the book quite honestly about depression and uh, your own struggle in that area are you able to kind of draw on those experiences I mean you mentioned the kind of no pat answers thing of you know don't worry it'll be okay clearly because you yourself have struggled incredibly difficult times you're not going to tell people oh don't worry it'll be fine (laughs) no no exactly um you know and I've been able to be I I didn't really share much of my own personal story that wasn't that wasn't necessary or appropriate um but, but I was able to to from experience to say to people there will be times when it'll feel like God's not there mm. um, and it'd be feel as if the whole world is against you and you were just in a big black hole but hold on mm. um, and there were times when yeah I would deal with men who were self-harming suicidal um, for whom life was just one big black hole mm. but those those times it was about the power then I think of relationship yeah. and I think so often don't you think that the gospel is um, is taught is told and, and, and communicated through relationship I mean that's how I first came to faith um, it's about if you say you're going to go back and see somebody you go back um you listen you talk you you show them value just as a human being just whatever their story might be and i suppose all those experiences for me of all those years of not feeling valued or feeling abandoned feeling rejected I kind of know what that feels like to be on that receiving end. Mm. So try to flip that um, and help people to see that they do have some value and they can find that again. Um, And there are people who will listen and will walk with them. Mm. So that was a bulk of of what I was doing in those early days with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any particular, I guess, uh, stories of people you met who had a particular impact on you or you just think there's a particular story there that's I mean there's loads in the book but any off the top of your head that you 
you wanted to share from people you met? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there are lots, actually. But one I do refer to in the book um, was when I worked in the high security prison. And uh, within that prison, there was a, a separate unit within that prison, which is quite topical at the moment, of course, right. as they're looking at, um, you know, expanding that, that kind of facility. So this guy was in this prison within a prison um, because he'd been involved in, in gang stuff and gangster stuff. Um, and he'd given evidence against some of his co-defendants. So he had to be kept away from the most of the prison population because his life was in danger as a result. He was also going to have a new identity and so on when, when he was eventually released, all yeah. that sort of stuff. So he was in quite an isolated situation. Um, and they were housed in very, very small units, three or four guys just in one small unit. Um, and I felt that the vicar still needed to go and call in there as well. So I would I would go in and visit. Um, and that was always quite amusing because it was re- really all the things you'd imagine, the uh, CCTV and the locked doors and the buzzers and the yeah. central control and those sorts of things. Um, big tough prison officers as well as the big tough prisoners and there was me this little girl vicar (laughs) wandering in Um, but I'd go and I'd go week after week and just sit with the guys and talk about what was in the paper and what they were doing and just just josh with them and just build relationship Mm. I guess with them Um, and one day this this chap um, said to me can can we have a private word um, and we went into one of the quiet rooms and he started to tell me all about his life and about this whole gangster stuff, about the fact that his dad um, was going to come and see him, but his dad had terminal cancer and he didn't think he was going to see his dad again. And when we got out of prison, he was going to change identity and was going to leave behind mm. all of this. So it was a very confused kind of guy. Mm. So I then made a point of, of going to see him regularly, talking through his story, talking through, ironically enough, issues of identity and identity in God. Um, and forgiveness and reconciliation and, and those sorts of things. And I began to take communion to him and we would pray together. We begin to read the Bible together. Uh, he saw his dad and they were reconciled. And um, this, this prisoner began to understand more about the Bible, began to um, write to people and make amends for some of the things he tried to do. His behaviour on the prison unit improved mm. um, and he was much more... Uh, helpful and not so, you know, bolshy and sweary and all those things. Excuse me. Um, And just before I left that prison, he told me his sort of some of the real stuff, his real name and some of his real background and all those sorts of things, which was a huge Mm. privilege, I thought. That's an overused word, Mm. but it it just spoke to me of that sense of communication from from this place of him being this this gangster guy yeah. um, to someone who had learnt to show his vulnerability mm. and had begun to turn to God. Mm. And a little while later, I got one more letter from him um, saying that he had a partner and had begun to attend church, had a home, had yeah. a job. And now I don't know, he's disappeared into sure. the system, new identity, yeah. new place, don't know anything about him. But... You know, it was. I was really touched by that, yeah. that, please God, he did carry on yeah. along some sort of reasonable pathway. Yeah. But there was that sense that I'd been allowed to be part of that journey for a while, and I, I hope God had spoken to him through mm. me. So that yeah. was fantastic. That was great. Now, I guess for, for many people when they watch uh, TV and see some of these particularly particularly horrific crimes that people were sent to prison for, words like monster are used to describe people. And... One would presume that in your job, you can't, I guess you can't really think like that, even if people have committed awful crimes. As you say, you have to go in and build relationship with people, but that must be incredibly difficult. I mean, I know you weren't working necessarily in, in the, the, the most secure prisons. I think you're one well, category down. You were for a yes, while. Well, yes. well in, in that situation where you're meeting murderers, yeah. 
What goes through your head before a conversation with someone like that? Sometimes I didn't know. Um, you know, you, 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 it's not the done thing when you're first meeting someone to say, so what are you in what here you for? It's kind of prison etiquette. You don't do that. No. Sometimes I did know. Sometimes yeah. I needed to know for my own safety because yeah. there were times when precautions had to be taken. Yeah. Um, and other times I, I knew because it was a high-profile person. So it was yeah. always a mixed bag. Um, and in fact, you know, the murderers weren't just in the high-security estate. Um, right. they, they can be in the sort of the normal prisons too. Yeah. Um, but there were sometimes I met people who I knew very well what they'd done and it was appalling. Um, and there's a, there is a sense of nervousness of, well, mm. what is this person going to be like? And But, you know, so often, particularly in the times, I guess, when I didn't know, you think, you're just a normal guy. Wow. Mm. And that was sometimes the most surprising thing, mm. um, was that actually somebody comes across such a normal guy and was. Mm. And was a human being like me, like you, was also capable mm. of such a depth of wrongdoing and terrible things. Mm. And I, I think we tend to call people like that monsters and, and, and demonise them almost literally mm. yeah. because we can't bear to think that a human being mm. can do those things, if yeah. you sort of mean. Um, if, we, if we accept that that person is human, then we're almost accepting that we all have the capacity mm. for such levels of depravity, I suppose might mm. be the word. And so we dehumanise. Mm. Um, but actually, they're human beings yeah. um, and do things... Ugh, I'm not saying we're all capable of, of doing those most appalling things, but it's on a spectrum. Yeah. So I suppose, really, I just try to approach them as a human being who's done something terrible. But that was then, and now I was faced with this person, and whilst not condoning anything that they might have done, I've got to help them find a way forward. Mm. Yeah. because that is the only way you can go, is yeah. forward. For some of those people, it was going to be for the rest of their life in prison. Mm. Um, but they still got to live in some way. Yeah. And I guess, you know, again, for, for a Christian chaplain, that you've got, uh, I guess, remarkable biblical support for your job. You know, verses come to mind about you're in prison, you visited me, and I'm sure you've heard all the jokes before about having a captive audience. Um, but, how you know, it must be very different from in inverted commas, normal parish ministry. Um, because I imagine a lot of the time you're, you're uh, ministering to people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves Christians for a start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you think the church in general needs to have more of that kind of outward-looking attitude to not just be caring for those who call themselves Christians, but for looking to go out into the community, whether it's prisons or schools? You know, do, do you feel like progress needs to be made in that area? I think there's an awful lot of incredibly good work that does actually go on in those environments mm. and in all sorts of environments. I mean, I did say that I often that I felt that the prison was frontline mission mm. because, as you say, by and large, the people that I'm encountering do not have any kind of Christian heritage or maybe a vague one from mm. Granny or something like that but they don't really know what it's all about so you're often going from very very first principles Mm. which is a hugely important thing for us to be doing I mean I think if there's any progress I would say particularly in relation to prison ministries that Mm. needs to be made um, and which in part I think my book is trying to address Mm. is to raise the profile of Christian ministry within prisons that you know there are all these prisons across the country hundreds and there are hundreds of chaplains Mm. paid part-time unpaid all those sort of things and and of other faiths as well Mm. who are going in every day into the situations I describe Mm. um, and trying to speak of God Mm. but also trying to humanise and to accompany in the way I've said. And, you know, it's not really a criticism, but I think if there's any encouragement I would give to the church, Mm. it's 
this really is a mission field. And although it isn't allowed to um, proselytise in prison, nevertheless, we can care and we can proclaim the gospel there, which is is, is what colleagues did all the time. Um, But but perhaps a little invisibly. Mm. I mean, I, I, I say in the book, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek, that as I was coming into ministry, there was always this, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this view that there were, there were tiers of ministry. And if you were, you know, were you really there and really good, you'd, you'd have your parish and then you'd, you'd go up through the ranks and one day you'd be some senior clergy person and, hey, you'd be fantastic. If you weren't quite that brilliant and you, but you were okay and you were pottering along, then you'd, you'd get through and you'd, you'd be a nice vicar of a nice town or lovely rural place sometime. And that will be good. If you blotted your copybook a little bit, you know, maybe your marriage didn't work out or whatever, then, well, you'd probably go into hospital chaplaincy. And if you were the lowest of the low, you'd be a prison chaplain. <laughs> now, I mean, that's not true, of course it's not. But I did come across that attitude. Right, yeah. And there is still a little bit of that. It's, a, you know, oh, well, if you're a prison chaplain, you're, you know, right. you're out of the way. And I just want to bang the drum for prison chaplains. It's fantastic ministry. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of Christians are really encouraged to hear the kind of stories you're saying about ministering. And I think I would like to hope, of course, that most Christians totally understand the need for that. Yeah. However, there's another area you've worked in where I think a lot of Christians are quite sceptical of. They don't like so much like to complain about perhaps and that's the media um Um, and you've you've been in the media a fair amount as i say a broadcaster on bbc radio um what's that been like always been such fun it's been brilliant (laughs) (laughs) no by and large been hugely positive experience i mean i've been broadcasting on radio now for gosh must be about 12 years Mm. um got into it again most of my life seems to have happened by accident (laughs) got into it by accident um lots of god incidences i'm sure um and yeah mainly on bbc radio although branching out a little bit now um and you've made it to premiere i I have hey i've made it that's it you've made it now (laughs) (laughs) um and it it really has been lots of fun um i've been on radio four and radio two two very different uh, bbc radio stations um one slightly more serious like more religious if you like right. and then radio yeah. two um the last five years on with chris evans on the breakfast show doing yeah. pause for thought slot and that's just it's such fun i mean it is zany it's wacky but where else am i going to get you know a, a, a congregation of millions yeah. where in i hope um an approachable fun yeah. light-hearted way but ultimately serious underneath way I can actually just highlight little gospel principles Mm. on a regular basis uh, and just speak into people's lives Mm. one of the people I was always really inspired by although he was uh, not a Christian was Rabbi Lionel Blue and he in one of his books he says he just wanted to enter into people's normal life Mm. and speak something of faith into their normal life and that's what I want to do as well. And that's what I've really tried to do yeah. with, with my media work. Yeah. But as you say, it hasn't always gone down well. <laughs> uh, can you give an example of that? Why has it not gone down so well? Well, I mean, I suppose like you know, most people in the media, once you put your head above the parapet, particularly yeah. in these days of Twitter, yeah. you're going to get the trolls. Yeah. Um, and particularly as I'm a woman, yeah. I do get that kind of pretty unpleasant stuff as yeah. well. I mean, you know, you deal with it in the end. But um, I have had one or two people contact me through my website or various other places and say, you need to decide if you're a Christian or a media star. You can't be both. And it's sort of, right. there's sort of anger yeah. and, and, and bitterness, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah. But actually, you know, 
faith isn't a box. It's not a compartment. We live in a very media-dominated world. It's one of the ways we, so many of us, communicate that actually for Christians to be absent from that would be a travesty. So my feeling is I want to, to be there. It's, it's something I think I'm quite good at. If I can relate to people and talk to people and say, hey, you know, Christians aren't all weird people yeah. sitting there disapproving of you. Actually, we have the same struggles, the same hopes and dreams in lots of ways as anyone Mm. but we do it within this framework of faith, mm. um, then I would think that's a really good thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, presumably it must be quite difficult to craft a script, though, because there must be pitfalls. I mean, one that comes to mind, and perhaps you know, this is a criticism in general of some of the sort of BBC faith slots, is it can just come across as Christians moralising, perhaps, on, um, on particular issues. How do, you, how do you avoid that? And, and I guess when you're sitting down to write a script... What do you have in mind or who do you have in mind that you're trying to reach? Oh, gosh, it depends, obviously, very much who your audience is. So if I'm writing a, a breakfast show script, let, let, let's take it for that. I mean, I've got some idea now of the demographic mm. of, of, of who listens to that show. Actually, it's pretty wide, it has yeah. to be said. But you've also got the context. It's a, it's a fast-moving, mm. wacky, topical, family-friendly kind of um, show. Mm. So I've got to bear that in mind as well. Um, and it's not the kind of uh, show where you can go on and, and be all moralistic because because actually you get shot down in flames pretty pretty quickly, right. certainly on Facebook, if nothing yeah. else, and you wouldn't be asked back. Yeah. Um, so really my, my first premise is what's topical? Mm. What are people talking about? You know, people of faith or not, mm. what are people talking about? Um, who is listening? What are they going to be concerned about at the moment? Um, is there something going on in my life, a very ordinary thing, mm. but that, that I can point to God in that, mm. or just literally something that can give people a moment to think? Mm. So often, and I'm, I'm using something happened with my kids or the dog or at home or work or whatever. You know, I say to people, beware what you say to me because one day it will be used in a script. You never know. Yes. So I, do, I, I personally try to start from very, from very ordinary, everyday things and point to something of the spiritual in those. It's also all about your delivery, of course, and that takes a bit of practice. If, because the script has to be written, it has to be submitted the day before right. um, to make sure it doesn't breach any of the BBC's guidelines yeah. about impartiality yeah. or any of those sorts of things. And it has to go through a producer who brings out a red pen, metaphorically speaking, so you can't say that. Um, <laughs> so it's gone through a bit of working. Um, so it, it ends up being a, a page mm. of, of script. Yeah. And the deal is you stick to that script, mm. um, certainly in what you're delivering in your pause for thought um, you, you don't really deviate from that because that's what's been agreed so it'd be very easy for that to sound very red you know so you, you could read it through and that'd be dull as ditch water so some of the skill comes in translating that written word into a conversational style yeah and I think some of the skill as well particularly for us as Christians is to speak into a mainstream audience and not use those Christian cliches oh, yeah. Um, because that isn't gonna that isn't gonna help, as you say, for a mainstream uh, audience. Do you feel like more broadly, though, for whether we're broadcasting or not, Christians need to learn how to speak to a modern world, which is, you know, by all statistics that I've seen, becoming more and more secular. Yeah, I think we we do need to. Con I think we're starting, but we need to continue to understand that people don't speak our language. People haven't been brought up uh, with the, with that Christian framework, and things that might be just bread and butter to us are, are meaningless in lots of ways. You know, there are surveys, aren't there, that say you know certain percentages of people don't really even know what Christmas is about and what yeah. Easter is about. Yeah. And we, I think, we really need to take that on board. Yeah. Um, and we need to take on board, I think, that um, as much as we love Jesus, as much as we follow 
follow him and he inspires us and he inspires me the way we talk about him mm. can either be encouraging and inspiring or just off-putting yeah. um, and it's, it's just just being aware of how we deliver things yeah. and being real you know again we, we all, all the way through we've spoken about telling our story and how that is what has a real impact on people and I think if we can tell our story mm. about how faith has changed us or helped us or what it's done for us that in the end is far more authentic than anything else absolutely well that story as you say is now uh, in front of me here in printed form it's jailbirds uh, it's out now published by lion and um yeah available now so sharon grenham thompson it's been fascinating to chat just got to finish by asking you what the future holds you've got the you've got the story you've got the book here uh, what are you looking forward to in uh, the next few years? Well, I'm really enjoying settling back into parish life. They're keeping me very busy, that's for sure. <laughs> but I might have another book brewing as well. You never know. So watch this Keep space. coming. Fantastic. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the profile. Thank you very much, uh, Sharon Grenham-Thompson, for speaking to us today.